This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Susan Cahill. Okay, I'm going to turn to something now that's very, very different. Take a listen to this. My name is Michelle Farrell. I have just brought out a new book called The Prohibition of Torture in Exceptional Circumstances. I started to read Waiting for the Barbarians towards the end of the writing of this book. Uh, Waiting for the Barbarians deals with one man's journey to understanding why torture is committed and how he feels about um, the use of torture by the empire which he serves. Coetzee is, I've been reading his work for many years, those of you familiar with his work know that he deals with sometimes quite dark themes, but themes uh, to do with the universal universal suffering, for example, or the human condition. And in Waiting for the Barbarians, he beautifully articulates the meaning of torture. And Michelle, if you wouldn't mind just reading a paragraph you have in your book, and it's incredibly powerful, and I think it encapsulates exactly where the debate is on torture. When Warrant Officer Mandel and his man first brought me back here, and lit the lamp and closed the door, I wondered how much pain a plump, comfortable old man would be able to endure in the name of his eccentric notions of how the empire should conduct itself. But my torturers were not interested in degrees of pain. They were interested only in demonstrating to me what it meant to live in a body as a body, a body which can only entertain notions of justice as long as it is whole and well, which soon forgets them when its head is gripped and a pipe is pushed down its gullet and pints of salt water are poured into it till it coughs and retches and flails and voids itself. They did not come to force the story out of me of what I had said to the barbarians and what the barbarians had said to me. So I had no chance to throw the high-sounding words I had ready in their faces. They came to my cell to show me the meaning of humanity and in the space of an hour, they showed me a great deal. Michelle, that's a powerful paragraph. And I'm wondering, can torture, can it ever be justified? The argument that I will probably stick to um, for the rest of my days is that we can't even ask this question whether torture can be justified. The correlation between justifications for torture and the act of torture, it doesn't exist. There is no reason to torture which allows it to become justifiable. So we're given the idea that torture happens because we need information or torture happens to get confessions and sometimes can be justified. But we don't have any actual links between these two things, so saving lives and getting information, for example. Um, My argument would be that torture is in fact perpetrated because we dehumanize the other person who is tortured. Torture is in fact an act of discrimination, an act of hatred, and this is the sort of understanding that we need. It's the understanding that Coetzee put forward when he says they came to show me the meaning of humanity. Torture is not about information, it's not about confessions, and therefore justifications simply can't exist. And why do you think it is, Michelle, that the UN Convention Against Torture really hasn't prevented big powers from torturing? Why is that? And how how are governments able to wriggle out of that legal space? That is an excellent and extremely difficult question, I think. Um, you know, to some extent, arguably, we're very bad at empirical evidence on things like um, whether or not since 1984, when the UN Convention Against Torture entered into force, we're very bad on measuring whether or not it has had effect. Um, so I wouldn't claim to say that it hasn't, but I, what I would say is that the, in particular since September 11th, 
the um, emergence of this justification for torture or the re-emergence of it in the form of the ticking time bomb scenario, that has certainly had an impact on the practice of torture around the world. The special rapporteur on torture, or former special rapporteur on torture, Manfred Novak, he made the point in one of his last reports that around the world when he talks to state agents, they're using a ticking bomb justification. And in a way, a point that I don't always like to hear made is that the United States is a moral is a moral actor in the world. It has such an important position in the world. And its use of torture has allowed other states to justify the use of torture. So that's one way of looking at whether or, whether or not um, torture, how it continues to be practiced. The wiggle room that states use, unfortunately, the enforcement of international law is very weak. So um, I think that wiggle room simply exists because states, we don't have an international policeman to stop torture, essentially. And do you think we'll ever live in a space that there will never be torture? Or is that just naive idealism? It's another um, quandary to think about. It's a, it's a difficult question in the sense, let's take, for example, the uh, Israel-Palestine conflict. Torture was used as a policy in Israel against the Palestinians for a number of years and finally outlawed um, in a famous 1990 Supreme Court decision. But in that decision, it left, it left open the possibility for the use of torture in taking bomb circumstances. And torture continues to be practiced there today. I think it's an example where a, a Supreme Court has held that torture is unlawful, that it's immoral and so forth. But we need to leave this um, slight exception open because of the fragility of the state and we might need to use it. I think as long as states um, feel that they need to defend themselves or states allowing their population to think that they need to be defended. I think the ticking bomb scenario will, will allow torture to be, to be practised. But yes, it's a difficult question. Can we be hopeful for the future, Michelle? I think we can. In fact, I think uh, we can be very hopeful if, if we can inform debates, not engage in debates on things like can we torture, but reframe them, rethink how we think about torture, um, remove ourselves from swallowing justifications given to us by states and challenge states on uh, these kind of doctrines that they feed to us. I would argue that it's up to us as individuals and students, lecturers, uh, journalists, we should all be sort of challenging notions that intuitively tell us there's something wrong with this question. That, I think, is one way in which we can ask states not to torture anymore by really challenging the reasons that they give us for doing so. And that was Michelle Farrell teasing out some of the courageous insights she provides the reader with in her new book, The Prohibition of Torture in Exceptional Circumstances. Now, if my last interview didn't wake up your brain and challenge it, this one certainly will. And yes, I know it's Sunday morning, but isn't that the very time of the week to be brave? The author Matthew Kill has just brought out a highly provocative book with a suitably emotive title, An Atheist History of Belief. Now, Matthew is the author of several well-known novels, including the Whitbread award-winning book, English Passengers, which was also shortlisted for the Booker Prize. What's interesting about An Atheist History of Belief is that it critically examines religion through its history. And for Matthew... He believes it's one of the greatest creations of the human imagination. Matthew began the interview by explaining to me why an atheist would be interested in writing a book about belief. I wanted to try and understand beliefs 
religious, but even some non-religious, from, from the point of view of somebody who doesn't believe in them themselves, wants to look at them from a distance and see how they came to be. I suppose I had the, the attitude that belief is a work of our imagination, an amazing, huge work of our imagination. And uh, I wanted to think, how did we develop all these ideas and, and why? Why did we want to come up with all these extraordinary things? At different times. So do you think belief is actually an invention of sorts? I do, yes I do. Um, I think uh, it's a huge invention by ourselves and um, I would say its uh, main purpose is uh, very understandably to give us a, a sense of uh, comfort against all the alarming and frightening things that have always been around us, that it's uh, something that gives us a, a sense that there's something you can do quite sympathize with humankind wanting to do this. It is a very frightening world. And can we distinguish between belief and actual religion? Well, I suppose I was looking really at a kind of intense belief, I suppose, and I suppose most belief is religious, but I was also looking at a few intense beliefs that certainly didn't think of themselves as religious, but I thought had a lot in common with religion, like Marxism, for instance. Uh, And I wanted to write about them, well, Marxism, for instance, because I thought it you could actually see where it came from. A lot of the ideas came from religious ideas, so I wanted to sort of see how it fitted into the picture. I think Marxism has a a passion, and it also has a a sense of prophecy. It says it it knows what uh, Marxists believe they know what the future will be, which is very much from a religion, and it also has an element of the end of the world in it. It very much follows the pattern of medieval medieval Christian and heretical ideas that there are three stages, and the last one will be a kind of huge cleansing end of the world, after which everything will be happy and good. Uh, with Marx, it was the, the aristocratic stage and the bourgeois stage, followed by the cleansing proletarian revolution, but it actually fits a much, much older Why do you think, Matthew, it's such a minefield when we discuss religion? I think it's because we have so much at stake, because religion offers us a way of feeling safe in the world or safer, and people don't want to let that go. And if you challenge people and people feel that somebody is trying to undermine their their confidence that their way is the right way and that they're the ones who will get to heaven or that everything will be all right, they get very very upset because you're you're challenging what what makes them feel at ease in the world and safe. I imagine there's some people who will be particularly devastated reading what you've had to say about religion. I think it's it's not a, a book that tries to belittle religion as as I've said in any way. And but I mean some people may not like its approach. I actually know one of some people who read it who are believers and uh, they were quite intrigued because I mean, in some ways, I, was, I suspect that belief is in part a, a feeling, and you could read the book and still keep the feeling. So I wanted to be very clear, and that's why I had the title. It's an atheist history of belief, because that's exactly what it is. Uh, it may upset some people, it's inevitable, but um, I hope it won't upset people too much, because it's, it's trying to look at the subject dispassionately, and it's about our inventions in belief. It's, I'm not arguing about whether uh, there are gods or is a god or not, because... That's not what I'm interested in here. I'm, I'm interested in all the fascinating details. And do you think Buddhists, Christians, Hindus, Muslims hold their beliefs differently? Yes, I think they're all related. I, I, 
the other idea I had in this book is that our beliefs tend to reflect our fears and the world we live in. So a farming society, you'll, you'll have beliefs, um, you'll have gods, farming gods, you'll have gods of the crops you build, you'll have gods to keep away insects that will eat the crop, gods who will, you pray to who will keep the floods right and all of this. And uh, in the world we're in now, we will tend to have, concentrate on things that we feel will reflect our world. And do you think women and men believe differently? Like, do you think we're distinct? We are very different in how we go about our beliefs or certainly how we practice our beliefs. I don't know. That's uh, an interesting question. It's not something I've thought about. Uh, It's a fascinating question. And what's interesting about an atheist history of belief that you critically examine religion through history? If I was to try and pick out a few key moments, one would be the invention of God. Nobody knows when that happened, but um, at some point, I, I see it as very much tied up with this extraordinary ability we have, uh, which is called theory of mind, which is to, to think what other people are thinking, empathy. And we have it to an extraordinary degree. It's one of the things that makes us human. We can sort of sense what's going on in other people's minds to an, a remarkable level. And I think uh, we became so good at this. It was our great specialization, along with language and being able to throw spears accurately, that actually we began to see uh, points of view where there were no points of view in spirits, in rivers, in mountains, in storms, in animals. But Matthew, is that not the eternal mystery in life? Well, it depends which, which way you're coming from. If you don't happen to believe in it, then, as I'm, as I'm afraid I don't, then uh, I suppose you're looking for a, another answer, which is what I've been doing. After that, I suppose, next great one huge transformation was the what I would see it, the invention of paradise, which happened about about 2000 BC in two separate places. And that was in ancient Egypt and also uh, among the early Iranians. They both seem to have developed paradise. Maybe one heard from the other. And this seems to have been bound up very much with a kind of class war in that they uh, uh, previously there had been a kind of miserable underground afterlife that everybody seems to have believed in and nobody was much looking forward to as it was a dark miserable terrible place where everybody whoever they were even kings were doomed to end up and then suddenly a couple of places the very grand uh, decided that they could actually go somewhere rather nicer up onto a shining mountain and have a nice afterlife and uh, there's a kind of uh, a certain point um, the rest of the population very reasonably decide that they want this as well. And in Egypt, you end up with actually three kinds of paradise. You have one rather posh one and one uh, sort of middling one. And, uh, well, you had one for the pharaohs, a middling one, and then um, a, a paradise for the poor farmers, which was just a paradise where there were no insects and the weather was always good and the floods were always just as you expected. So in a way, I suppose paradise reflected the best thing you could imagine. <laughs> Do you think atheists can be interested in belief? Do you know what I mean? Or do you think one precludes the other? No. Well, I know some some more sort of scientific, intense atheists like Richard Dawkins believe that belief is an irrelevance, that you should just ignore it. It's just an annoyance and the world will be better off if we just had nothing to do with it. I don't think that at all. I think it's a fascinating thing. I think it's part of the richness of, of our cultures. And I think uh, I, I'm just... Uh, intensely curious about it, even though I don't believe in it. I think it's something which we sh- we ignore at our peril. It, it's, uh, as I, I say in the book, it's a vital part of the story of who we are. It's uh, from 33,000 years ago and well beyond. And it's something people have needed across history from Neolithic times 
China, to the Mayan world, um, a means to reassure ourselves in a frightening world. It's, it's in our architecture, it's in our art, it's in the, the phrases we use. I mean, you can't really, whether you're Christian or not, if you're an English speaker, you can't really speak for more than a, a short time without referring to something in the Bible. It's embedded in the language. And I think you'll understand the world infinitely better if you have a, an understanding of religion. I, I used to, I studied history for years, and it's been my great fascination. I used not to think religion was a vital part. I came around to it gradually. But uh, having looked at it, I feel that I understand the world far better because, and I understand history far better, because people had these ideas in the forefront of their minds. You can't understand why they were doing things or what they were thinking unless you have some understanding of it. How important is ritual to belief? Uh, I think it's very important. I think it always has been. I think it's part of the atmosphere. I think religion has always, from the earliest times, had a, an intensity of atmosphere because they've, I mean, even in the, the caves of south, southern France from 30,000 years ago, there's strong evidence that it was they had a kind of religious service in these places. They must have been quite extraordinary because you had candles, lamps, they had oil lamps lighting up tiny fragments of these extraordinary paintings on the walls. They were very airless, so people were, would have felt quite strange just for the lack of oxygen. You had this chanting is suspected. It was thought that they may have chanted. There was definitely uh, evidence that they were striking on stalagmites and stalactites to make extraordinary booming almost musical sounds. They found flutes. So if you can imagine, it must have been the most uh, extraordinary type of religious service as they appealed to the spirits 30,000 years ago. So, um, and I think from then on, it's part of the, the magic, if you like, or the sense of magic to try and reach these otherworldly beings who you hoped would help you in all the dangers you faced. Now, Matthew, one of the things I was quite surprised to read was that you weren't, when you were writing the book, you weren't really interested in understanding or writing about the history of religious institutions. Yet, <laughs> the history of these institutions itself explains some of our obsessions and beliefs? Uh, yes, I suppose. I think I was interested in the, the end result. I mean, it's a vast subject. I would have needed to write a, a book ten times the subject, but also... I'm afraid, after a while, the history of religious institutions tends to be a history of power struggles. And um, I'm just not very interested in power struggles. I'm interested in imagination. Um, I'm interested in what ordinary people actually believed and how they saw their world. And that's often slightly different from the religious institutions. So I wanted to concentrate very clearly on one thing. For me, it is the, the most extraordinarily fascinating thing to look at. And has there been any shifts in your own personal thinking since writing An Atheist History of Belief? How has it changed you? I think it's changed me in that I've understood, or I feel I understand human history much better. I have a, since the age of very, very young age, apparently since I was about four or something, all I really wanted to know was the answer to one single question. That's all I ever really cared about, which is how the world became as it is today. And it's true, it's all I really one thing I'm fascinated by. And um, I feel I understand it far better now because uh, religion's everywhere. It's, I mean, it, what a dreary world it would be without it. We'd have none of these extraordinary buildings. We, we'd have a, a duller language. If it, were, if it was all just about money and self-sustenance, it would be a, 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 an ugly, dreary world. I'm, I don't believe in religion, but uh, I think it's 
made our world vastly richer. And it's fascinating to see what, what it's done and what it, how it's changed our world. But Matthew, you could also argue that, uh, you know, religion has also been a key component in why countries go to war. Yes, certainly. But then good and bad things come from religions. I don't, I'm not somebody who says, feels that religion is all bad. I, I would say that religions are as good or bad as the people in them. Um, and religions are huge, huge things, huge structures, huge organizations with every kind of person in there, good and bad, and they'll act accordingly. I don't think it's, it's right to just say, oh, well, all religions are bad, and it makes no sense. And as an atheist, where do you see belief in the future? In the future, well, I suppose I would say, I would guess that it will depend on, on the future itself, in that my main idea in this book has been that religion is, offers us a kind of comfort against all the things we fear, a sense of having something to do, some form of control. And I think uh, religion becomes less important when we feel more confident. And it's about our hopes and our dreams. Yes, our hopes and our dreams. And if we have confidence and hopes and dreams, but especially confidence, then I suspect that people will need religion less as they have been for the last 200, 300 years. But if the world becomes more frightening, then I think religion will become more important again. So, Matthew, a lot of people would know you from your astoundingly uh, revered novel, English Passengers. Uh, You won the Whippert Award 14 years ago and you were shortlisted for a booker. Do you think that belief and a book about belief will make it to a booker list at any stage? (laughs) Well, you never know. Let's hope so. I mean, it's a very different thing. But then I feel writing... The important thing is to to try different things and to keep your keep your sense of adventure alive. If you keep on writing the same sort of thing, it's it's going to get tired after a while. So I like trying to do very different things. Do you think that by being an atheist, it changes the way you write? For a lot of writers, they talk that writing is their own religion, first of all. It's what gets them up in the morning, allows them to breathe, it gives them their humanity, it makes them feel alive and so on. What is your substitute and is it the writing process itself is your religion? I suppose that and just uh, curiosity and an, an amazement at this fascinating world we live in. I just want to know it and understand it. Um, I find it an extraordinary place and I feel that it's something amazing to be able to just see it and I suppose my religion is just uh, understanding and feeling that uh, I don't want to waste a moment to, to know this world.
And that was a very insightful Matthew Keel talking to me about his new book, An Atheist History of Belief. Well, that's it for Talking Books from me this morning. I hope you enjoyed the show. Now, before I get caught by the clock, I just want to briefly say thank you so much to everybody who's emailed talkingbooks at newstalk.ie. It's great to get your emails. It's really great. And it's always so interesting to get listener opinions on some of the books we're covering on the show. Okay, all that's left for me to do is to thank Valerie Jordan who helped out in research and the lovely Alan Regan on sound. Now, it's getting very, very nippy out there or what could be positively described as brisk and fresh. We've been talking books. Why don't you get out of your warm, cosy bed, have a hot, hot drink, wrap up well and whatever you do, go easy. Thanks for listening to this News Talk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.